0: let me ask you a question as we begin what would you do to prepare for your mission what would you do to prepare for your mission if you had received such a mission from on high that you were given a specific task what is it that you would do most people might analyze you might analyze the approach the plan of attack you might lay out all of your options survey everything and figure out what is the right way to go about doing it you might double check all of your inventory Check all of the things that you need to bring with you. Perhaps lay them all out there right there on the floor to make sure that they get in your hiking backpack. All the things you need to accomplish your mission. And then just go ahead and set out. Well, in terms of receiving a mission, the disciples of Christ had been given their mission in terms of the passage that we're going to look at. In terms of Acts chapter 1, you can go ahead and turn there with me right now. They were given the mission to bring the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And in our passage today, we see how they prepared for their mission. We see how they prepared for their mission. And in what is a very instructive uh, lesson and passage for us as Christians, we see that the first thing, the very first thing they do, the very first thing they do to prepare for their monumental task of laying the foundation of the church, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, it was to pray. It was to pray. Once again, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1, if you haven't already. Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts, also known as Acts of the Apostles, was written by Luke. Uh, he also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in these two volumes, so to speak, you have volume 1, that is Luke, and then you have volume 2, which is Acts. In these two volumes, they speak of the ministry of Jesus. They speak of the ministry of Jesus. So if you think about Luke, it writes about Luke there, it writes in his Gospel, the ministry of Jesus while Jesus was on earth. He lived his righteous life, he died on the cross, he rose from the grave, he stayed with the apostles, and then the book of Acts turns to address the ministry of Jesus as he is in heaven. Acts chapter 1, Christ rises, he ascends to the right hand of the Father, and then we see the ministry of Christ, even though he's in heaven, he's continuing to work. So while this is the Acts of the apostles, you could easily think about it as the Acts of Christ in heaven, through his spirit working in the apostles and the disciples you know in terms of acts I cannot stress enough how unique this time was in God's plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation it is incredibly unique you can just think about like the Old Testament prophecies for example for so long God had told his Old Testament people through the prophets that he was going to do something absolutely unique through his Messiah and the Spirit one day And this spirit that would be poured out would bring about renewal, this recreation, starting with the very hearts of God's people. God had promised to do for his people what they themselves could not do on their own because of their own sin. Think about all the times that Israel right, had forsaken God. They had turned away because of their own love for themselves as opposed to a governing love for God. And so they sin against God. The Bible says that even now all people have sinned and rebelled against God and sought to do what we want. Instead of doing what our great and loving, awesome God wants for us. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. And I'm guessing you, friend, probably see this in yourself. But if you think back to the Old Testament, he promised to give his people new hearts, new spirits. That he would take out their stony hearts and give them hearts of flesh. Hearts that, so to speak, would beat for God. And he would would even write there his law on their hearts. Through the promised Holy Spirit. And as this spirit was dumped out through his chosen one, he would reconstitute his people in Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so finally, right here in the book of Acts, right here in the book of Acts, all of those promises were coming to fulfillment in Christ, in his death, in his resurrection. And then as we saw last week, in his ascension. And then as we see soon in Acts chapter 2, in the pouring out of the spirit, finally, this moment was Coming to fulfillment. This was absolutely unique. Starting from Acts chapter 2, the disciples go on to build the foundation of the church through the preaching of the gospel. And it is that foundation, friend, if you're here as a Christian, it's that foundation that we have been built upon as God is adding to his house, so to speak. According to his plan. We see Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 that Jesus, right, after he had gotten up from the dead, he charged his disciples there in verses 4 and 5 to stay in Jerusalem and to await the Spirit. Then look there, here's the purpose 1 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's what we see just kind of unfolding throughout the entire book of Acts. And there in verse 9, he says there, it says there, He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Having their instructions, having their clear mission, the clear mission in their minds, let's pick up there at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. We see that in preparation for their mission, in preparation for their mission, they prepare through prayer. They prepare through prayer. That's the main idea today. We see first, they pray in dependence upon God, and then second, they pray in unity. So number one, point number one, dependence. Point number two, unity. Before we look at their prayers in dependence upon God, uh, let's again turn to see the scene. You see there in verse 12, right? They return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem. Uh, So here they are, they're returning from where Jesus ascended and they're heading back to Jerusalem. So this is about a two-third, two-third of a mile away from all of it back to Jerusalem, which it says there was a Sabbath day's journey away. Basically, it's just a typical distance Jewish law had allowed them to walk on that rest day. And in returning to Jerusalem, verse 13 says that they went up to the upper room where they were staying. So you're getting the scene, right? They come back. Uh, We're not entirely sure if it actually was a Sabbath. It actually doesn't appear that it was, but it was just a Sabbath day's journey away. So they get back to Jerusalem, and then they go up to this upper room. They went up to the upper room where they were staying. Think back to your mind, if you're familiar with Scripture. Is this the first time that we have seen them in an upper room? Some really significant things happen in an upper room. This is the upper room, actually. It is where jesus christ led them in what would be known to be the lord's supper right where jesus christ remembers the passover with his disciples only hours just mere hours before he would lay down his life as a sacrifice what did he do there he broke bread with them he drank the cup which of course symbolized his own broken body and his own spilled blood for the forgiveness of sins for everyone who would repent and believe that's luke chapter 22 of course, not all of them really understood what Christ was talking about. They didn't understand what Christ was talking about, right? If you think about it, what king lays down his life to be judged like a criminal? We know also that many of them didn't get it because after the crucifixion, well, what were the disciples doing? They were actually discouraged in what is traditionally known to be in an upper room. Luke 24:36 to 43, Jesus appears and then he rebukes them for their unbelief, right? This is what he says in verse 38. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? And and what does he do? He proves to them. He shows them that he actually is alive. He says, look there. uh, If uh, you turn there, Luke 24, verse 39. You can turn there, Luke 24, verse 39. He says there, look, touch me and see. Touch me and see. And then in verse 40, he says, look at my scars on my feet and then also on my hands where the nails went through. And then verse 33, just to prove it even more, he says, hey, I'm hungry. You guys have anything to eat? But if you remember in Luke, or sorry, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, you can turn back there, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Luke specifically tells them that this is what Christ did for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. Luke 1, 3 states that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering and many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. But in our passage here, the, the disciples are gathering together having already seen the risen Lord, having already witnessed him ascend into heaven, and then having re- received their mission. I can imagine that a huge transformation must have occurred. Where do they go from? Will they go from being seriously confused about Christ as he foretells their death, about talking about the Lord's Supper? Right. And then they're discouraged after the crucifixion. They're sad, thinking that he really is dead. Their king is dead. And then they're frightened. Right. And then doubtful as Christ appears to them out of nowhere. And then right here in Acts chapter one, they are ready to rock. Here they are gathered together in dependence upon God and in unity with each other, calling down God's power to act. I think this is actually really encouraging. If you think about it, encouraging for us today. As Christians, the disciples here are just so human, just like me, just like you guys. If the disciples knew that the life of following Christ certainly had its ups, certainly had its downs, well, certainly we should too. It's when we aren't listening, are not listening to his word and seeking to understand him, that's when we go astray seeking understanding according to His Word. But it's when we are listening and understanding His Word in full dependence upon Him and His Spirit, it's then that we are steadied in the Christian life, no matter what happens in our earthly circumstances, as we know so clearly from the book of Acts, as they face persecution over and over and over again. This is seen as they pray in dependence upon God. They receive the Word of God, and then they pray They pray in dependence upon God. This is point number one now. Point number one, we're going to turn there. They pray in dependence upon God. Look there in verse 14. All these, all these, we're going to see who this is, but all these with one accord, what were they doing here? They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Based on the context, once again, we we have very, very, very good reason to think that they are praying for what? They are praying for God's hand to move. They're praying for God's hand to move in the sending of the Spirit. Jesus, before his ascension, tells them that he was just going to do the, just this. We already looked at that in the book of Acts. But even if you go back before the crucifixion, just go back before the crucifixion, Jesus specifically told his disciples this, quote, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, John 14:16. He's talking about the Spirit there, another helper to be with them. And then in John 16, 23, Jesus promises them, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Interesting, isn't it? And there in that whole discourse there, he's speaking about the coming of the Spirit, amongst other things. But it makes sense there that as they gather in the upper room, we're not sure if it was the exact same upper room, but there's a good reason to think that. Uh, It makes sense that as they gather in the upper room, they are obeying Christ's command here. They are praying that God would do what he promised and that his plan of salvation would unfold before their eyes, that God's hand would work. You know, in many ways, this is exactly what prayer is. Of course, in its simplest sense, prayer, you can just think about it like the talking to God, but of course, there's a whole lot more to unpack there. Uh, but to be a little bit more specific, and especially when it comes to asking of God... Prayer is simply asking God to do what he has promised according to his character and will. Prayer, when it comes to asking, it is asking God to do what he has promised according to his character and according to his will. So, you get that? So, because he is who he says he is, and because he will do what he has promised, we, therefore, Christian have great confidence in our prayers, Think about it in the, in the family relationship, right? The same goes for the child who's absolutely certain of, their, of the parent's love for them. The child who knows the love of her mother is able to fall into her mother's arms to receive care for her wounds. So it is with a Christian, knowing who God is, right? Knowing how God and his love has reached down to us in Christ by his love and his grace and His mercy. So God, according to his plans, he plans that we would go up to him in Christ in that same love. You know, some people think that Christian prayer is like some sort of magical incantation where we command some sort of universe force that we call God. And whatever we want of the universe, you know, we just utter some words through this prayer, and then it comes to be. My friends, you've got to realize that that is absolutely, utterly wrong. That, in fact, sounds more like pagan notions of prayer. Those are false ideas of prayer, and of God, and of us. We want to avoid any idea of prayer that ends up putting us in the power of the Creator. We want to avoid any understanding of prayer that makes us the creator. Pagan notions of prayer will tell you to speak just like God did, speak things into existence, and therefore we should as well. That is false, that is anti-Christian. According to the Bible, we know who the sovereign one is. It is God. It is he who dwells in the heavens and does all that he pleases. And it is to him that we are to pray so once again because he is who he says he is and he will do what he has promised we therefore can have great confidence in our prayer it is out of his love and out of his sovereignty that he calls people to come to him with our cares and concerns asking him to do what he you have promised god asking you to be who you promised yourself to be so listen to this right psalm 51 verse 1 there david you know he sins he commits adultery he even murders somebody in order to do this uh, David prays, have mercy on me, O God, according to, he does not say, because of my great acts of repentance. He doesn't even say, because of this wonderful work of prayer. No, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Then he says, blot out my transgressions, not according to his own great works of mighty righteousness, but according to your abundant mercy blot out my transgressions. You can think about the Lord's prayer that we prayed earlier together as a partially gathered church. We pray together your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's important to note here this aspect of whose will it is that we pray for. When we ask God, we ask according to God's will as opposed to our own selfish wills. Christian, let me ask you a question in terms of application. Look if you look at your prayers Just think about what you guys have prayed for in the last week and even this morning. What do they reveal about who you think the Lord is? What do your prayers reveal about who you think the Lord is? Maybe you pray a lot, unfortunately, about getting worldly things. Maybe to you, right? Therefore, God is the butler you think that you just boss around. Maybe you think you belong at the center of God's universe and then this is also reflected through your prayers because you know what? God's great plan of salvation, praising the marvelous Yahweh over all the Lord, praying that Christ would build his church and that he would establish his rightful rule here on earth and then to judge evil and injustice once and for all, maybe those types of things just don't really show up in your prayer life. Or maybe, frankly, you just hardly pray about anything at all. Whether your cares and concerns or God's salvation plan in Christ. Friends, you realize that that actually might reveal a wrong understanding of who God is. Maybe you think that God is distant, and so therefore you don't pray. Maybe you think he's far off. Maybe you think he is not good and so can't be trusted, and that's why you don't pray. Christian, whatever it is, let me encourage you to examine your prayer life and what that might mean for who you think God is. And then with, all, with our wrong understandings of who God is, of course there are in all of us to some degree at diff- different points in time in our life, we can go back to the Word and realize that it is those who know the Father's love in Christ, it's those who ask of Him. It is those who know His will in Christ, it's those who ask according to His will. It's those who know His power as God raised Christ from the dead. And that same Spirit now dwells in us. It is those who boldly call upon Him to act in power. And it is those who trust in His goodness who entrust themselves to Him and His timing. We see all of these things actually in the Gospel in terms of who this God is that then helps us understand ...how we are to go to Him. We see the Father's love and His will... ...in sending the eternal Son... ...to be the answer for our sin... ...as we all had rebelled against God... ...earning for ourselves just condemnation... ...even in hell, the Bible says. But the solution there, God initiates... ...and He sends us, according to His will... ...His very own Son, out of love. God determines... ...that would be the plan in Christ... ...and He designs... ...how that is accomplished in Christ... ...as He saves a people for Himself... And forgives all who would ever turn from their sin and believe upon him. So where we were guilty of sin and deserve judgment, Christ then steps in as a substitute to bear the wrath that we deserved. He bears the death sentence. Where we were runaways and rebels and had cut ourselves off from God, God reaches out in Christ and sinners are brought back by the Spirit. We see this salvation plan. It is by His purpose. His plan and His design. We see God's power as he raised Jesus from the dead. And then, in so doing, Christ defeats sin, death, and Satan. And now all of us who are Christians have been freed from the tyranny of sin. We see this in his timing. In his timing, he will bring his plan of salvation to completion at just the right time. In his coming, and then also in Christ's return. And then when it comes to prayer, our great and gracious God, now in that love, knowing all that he has done, calls us to come to him with our praises. With our confessions, with our cares and concerns, because He cares for us, it's because He is loving, and because He is sovereign that He calls His people to come to us. Now, as you speak to your friends who are not Christians, or, or maybe you yourself are still examining who is this Christ, maybe you're not, maybe you are unsure. Let me encourage you to know that this is why we pray, because of who God is and what He promises. It is not to get stuff. It is not to tune in to some universe force in order to enable me to get what I want. We pray because God calls us to commune with him who is the Lord. Fundamentally, if you think about the creation, relating with the creator, it's about relationship. It's about giving glory to the creator. It's about submitting to the creator and Lord. It's about living in a loving relationship with God, our maker, and you, friends, you can have this loving relationship. It can be restored. You can be restored if you repent of your sins and believe upon Him. And friend, not only can you be restored, the Lord actually commands us to be restored as He is, in fact, the Lord. But for those who understand that Christ is King, even His commands, right, to repent of our sins and believe, to turn to Him, even those things are good as Christ is in fact that good. In terms of prayer, Luke beautifully highlights the prayers of God's people in both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. If you just start with Acts, for example, here, once again, you know, Jesus pours out his spirit, and then it says, or he tells them he's going to pour out his spirit, and it says that all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. If we move on, right, before they choose the apostle to replace Judas, uh, the Judas mentioned there in our passage is not the Judas who betrayed um Christ and who killed himself this is a different one. It says that they gathered together to pray. And then as the word is preached and then as the church grows in 242, it says and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We go on and then after they are wrongly jailed and persecuted for preaching, Acts 4:24 records that when they had been released, they go out and they join the other disciples not to commiserate about their their difficulties, but to pray. They lifted up their voices together with God, praying that he would move to act and grant them boldness to continue doing what they were already doing. We could just go on and on. We can multiply all these examples about how how Luke here emphasizes the prayers of God's people. Certainly something to pay attention to as we go through the book here. But church, as you grow in knowing Christ, I pray that you grow in praying to him. Asking him to do what he has promised according to his character and according to his will. All of our prayers fall underneath that broad understanding of prayer. Whether one is praying for the Spirit to come or whether one is praying for health issues to be resolved. So if you're having these health issues, you know, he, though he has never promised that that particular, your particular health issue would be resolved here on earth according to your timing, as you realize that he has promised in his faithfulness Christian to never leave you nor forsake you to sanctify you in all of your circumstances he has promised to make known to the watching world the sufficiency of his marvelous grace in Christ in our suffering and his power in our weakness and in his abounding love he has promised his grace that would sustain us all the way until the end where he will bring us to himself once and for all and so that the love that we know, having been showered upon this love in Jesus, is that same love that guarantees our final union with him. Praise God for that. Given he is who he says he is and does what he has promised, we therefore can run to him, asking him to act in power according to his character and will. We see the disciples as they prepare for their mission, they, just, they prepare through prayer in dependence upon him. That's point number one. Point number two here is they pray in unity. They pray in unity. Look at verse 14, and you see how this unity in prayer is underscored here. It says, again, all these. It's very emphatic here. All these with one accord. What were they doing? They were devoting themselves to prayer together. It could be translated this way. They all joined together constantly in prayer. In terms of unity we have three different groups here these early followers of Jesus Christ they're coming together in one accord it's a bit of an eclectic group if you think about it these first disciples you have the original disciples minus Judas you got uh, you know the tax collectors and then you got the fishermen they come together and they're praying for God to do what he's promised to do so can you have the women you have the women one of them was a formerly demon-possessed one actually these women are the ones who follow Jesus Christ from early on. And the Gospel of Luke says that they even supported Jesus out of their own pockets. They play a very special place there as Luke highlights them in the Gospel of Luke as well as right here. But these are the women that Jesus revealed himself to after the resurrection. Certainly the disciples saw the same thing, Jesus after the resurrection. These women were witnesses of Christ, saw Christ after the resurrection. Thirdly, you have his family members. You have his family members. Interestingly, right, his brothers in the beginning, they did not believe. But now they are believing. And they go on to play some very significant uh, roles in the church there. But all of these had witnessed the resurrection of Christ. And each one of these folks, individuals, just like ourselves, individuals, God himself had chosen to reveal himself to them, to, to, to each one of them. And he had chosen to use their prayers to move forward his plan in salvation history according to his sovereignty. And in this upper room, where they had once thought that God's purposes and plans had failed, now they realize that God's plans had succeeded in the resurrection of Christ, in Christ's ascension. And so they gather to pray with renewed hope in their faithful God, calling on him to act. And we see what happens in fulfillment with his Old Testament prophecies. He pours out his spirit in Acts chapter 2 marking the beginning of the church age and also as he empowers the disciples to preach and bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Again, this group was quite special as they had heard the prophecies of the spirits coming. They had heard the prophecies that they had heard for so many years. They are right about to be fulfilled in Jesus as he pours out a spirit. So they're basically standing over the fault line of salvation history, going from the old covenant to the new covenant. There are so many things unique to them. Who they are in God's divine plan, that's unique. Where they were in His plan, standing over the fault line of salvation history, that's really unique. And then even what they pray about in His divine plan, the coming of the Spirit once and for all. But friends, even though they are unique, as we mentioned last week, we still share the same general mission as they did. We still share the same general mission as they did. We are still to make disciples of all nations, preaching and teaching about Jesus. Jesus. We still need the same boldness that the early church needed and prayed for. We still need God to move and then to act in powerful ways according to his will. And we still need to entrust ourselves to him as his timing in his timing as we remain faithful. We still need unity in the church as the people of God. And we still pray, come Lord Jesus. Just as the early disciples prepared for their mission through praying and in praying independence and then here in unity so we too prepare for our ongoing ministry of preaching the gospel and living our lives changed by the gospel and so we are to go to God praying together as a church think about the prayers that have already been prayed here today think about the prayers that have already been prayed here today in the beginning we prayed the Lord's Prayer together that's us as a partially gathered congregation coming together to pray to the heavens For God to act, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. Did you pray that, Christian? Or did you just recite it? Because that's what we do in 93 degree weather, meeting on the blacktop here at Hacienda. We we prayed the prayer of confession in response to Ephesians chapter four. We confessed about the different ways in which we don't labor for unity in the spirit amongst church members. Did you pray that? Or did you just tolerate it? Wondering actually why Jason's going on so long again in the hot sun. And then from Psalm 133, I kind of see that as a prayer. We're just kind of praising God through his own words towards one another. And that works very similarly as prayer does. We're praising God for who he is. You know, as we, we as one side of the conge- this partially gathered congregation, spoke the words of God to this side and this side spoke it to that side. Did you actually mean it? Then we had the pastoral prayer where we bring our cares and concerns before God. We prayed for the persecuted church in Nigeria, your brothers and sisters whose blood has been shed for the sake of the gospel. The blood of the martyrs, the voice voices of the martyrs that a revelation Christ never forgets. What else do we pray for? We pray specifically for church members of our body. If you just think about like last week, okay, we pray for Caesar and Dulce in their marriage. We were rejoicing with them in their marriage. This week, who do we pray for? We pray for Desiree and Polis in their in the birth of Leah. Not just for safety, right? But instead, we pray for the salvation of their children, that God would work and they would and, and God would act through Polis and Desiree to save. We also pray for grace and others who are struggling to faithfully love and care for those who are ill. And then we're going to move on to the closing prayer at the end of the sermon here. And typically the preacher will pray asking that God by his power would work to impress the truths that we just looked at into our hearts by the power of the Spirit such that we would live it out in our lives. Friends, you realize that just as the early church gathered together for prayer, so we too gathered together for prayer the question is, is do we take advantage of it? As we pray all of these prayers, don't think that, right, that guy out there is the one who is praying. All of us are praying. All of us, yes, through a leader, go to God, asking him to act on account of his character and his will. Our hope is that as we are praying in one accord, we would do so together with that mindset, going to God together together praying that his will will be done in the same spirit to the same Lord. And so our prayers, friends, are actually participatory. They they are to involve you guys in the leader's prayers. This is why we pray. This is why the person who prays from up front prays in the plural. We pray, not I pray, but we pray. We all pray together as I lead. We all pray. We pray the Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven. That's all of us, right? That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven. And then how else do we intend the prayers to be participatory? Well, you just look at Scripture, right? What do many scriptural prayers end with? Amen. It ends with amen, which means really truly, truly, or let it be so. So, friends, I hope you guys are all about saying amen in our prayers. Saying amen is a very clear and evident way for you to participate verbally in our prayers. You can even amen different points of the sermon if you want. We used to have one brother who did this on a regular basis. He would even wave a pretend handkerchief, which meant to him that, yes, yes, that is good. You can do this. You can say, truly, truly, that is so. May it be so. We pray these things. So let me encourage you, as we gather week in and week out, when we pray from the front, friend, do not sit passively. But even as the leader prays, engage your mind and your heart as if you yourself were praying their very words. So as the leader says, we pray for such and such, you can say audibly under your breath or murmur if you want. And Lord, I pray as well. So in your amen, to conclude the prayers, affirm the leader's words of prayer with your words of prayer. In your amen. As we think about the prayers given up here in the community this morning, again, were you present to pray in unity with your fellow church members, praying to the Father through Christ, your Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior, in the power of the Spirit? I certainly hope so. This is one way that we can join together in unity to praise God and also to call upon Him to act in power according to His character. And his will, especially as we pray about our own health, as we seek to display the glory of God to the world. And as we call upon him to save others that we're sharing the gospel with. Well, to conclude here, it's true that these disciples were unique, but it is also true that the church today shares their same general mission. It's also true that all of God's people have shared in the wonderful grace of can share in the wonderful grace of god as we go to him in prayer and as we continue our mission to be a display of god's glory in christ here in our locale and as we seek to preach the gospel and live our lives changed by the gospel it does us good to certainly follow the example of these disciples of christ preparing for our own mission by praying to god in dependence upon him and in praying in unity together here With that, let us pray together and keep in mind that we are to do this in unity, in dependence upon Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, indeed, we come before You as we have been gathered together before You through the blood of Jesus Christ in the Spirit. And so, God, all of us here today, we come to You asking that You would prepare us in an ongoing way through the Spirit so that we would magnify Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. We pray, God, that you would do this in a unique way where we would, by your grace, be able to see great fruit from the ministry you yourself have given us. You have saved us in Christ and through his blood. You have given us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you, Lord Jesus, have poured out the Spirit so that we might seek to glorify you to the ends of the age and to the end of the earth. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you certainly would be our hope even as we gather here today. In your name we pray, amen.